Genesis 13, verses 1 to 13. Genesis 13, 1 to 13. The separation of Abraham and Lot. Separation of Abraham and Lot. Verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and this opportunity to study your holy word. We approach you as your people. We approach you in Christ. We thank you for the death and resurrection of Christ, for our forgiveness and our salvation. Thank you for this word that has saved us, the word of truth, the word of grace, the word of your Holy Spirit. We approach you and this word as the living and abiding word of God. We trust it and we pray, Lord, that you will use it as we study it to transform our thinking, our values, and the way that we live. May we not be the same, Lord, because we are encountering you by your word and by your spirit. Teach us and guide us and enable us to be more faithful to you as a result. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this chapter, we have Abraham coming back to the land of Canaan. Remember in the previous chapter, at the end of it, he was compelled by the famine to go to the land of Egypt, to live there, to sojourn there, to be there temporarily. As it says in chapter 12, verse 10, he went to sojourn, which meant he did not go to Egypt to flee and settle there as though he had forgotten the promises of God and the hope in God that God had announced for him and his descendants in the land of Canaan. He was not a, one of a fickle faith to depart from the promises of God in the land of Canaan just because affliction arose in Canaan, the famine. He did not flee to Egypt simply because he wanted to avoid affliction. He went there in order to sustain himself, his life, and his family, and all of the servants that he had and livestock. Well, then in chapter 13, verse 1, he returns. Remember when he was in Egypt, that the Pharaoh sent him away with many possessions. 
whatever Abraham took into Egypt, he retained those. And then he also added, because Pharaoh gave him many things while he was in Egypt. So that's the context in which chapter 13, verse 1 presents itself. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. We have Abraham going to the land of Canaan, to the southern part called the Negev or the south country, and in that area is where he went and resided for a while. This is a common place for him to go, to that southern part of the land of Canaan. And he retained everything, he, his wife, and all that belonged to him. He lost nothing. Even though he was under trials and temptations in Egypt, God prospered him in the midst of all those trials and temptations in the land of Egypt. Prospered him, prospered Sarah, and everyone else while they were there. And Lot was also one who journeyed with him there and returned. Here, Abraham and Lot are both men of faith. They are men of faith. They live a holy, godly life. They believe the gospel, and they teach their own households to do the same. And God has blessed both of them, spiritually speaking, which is most important, but also in physical possessions. He's given them both. Verse 2 says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He had plenty of livestock, and he had plenty of silver, and plenty of gold. He lacked nothing. Everything was there for him. This is a man of faith who has been blessed by God also with much in material possessions. Verse 3, And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. We are reminded of the, this incident when he built an altar between Bethel and Ai. Chapter 12, verse 8. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent and Bethel on the west, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. He journeys farther northward into the land of Canaan, into the middle section uh, of this, these two cities, Bethel and Ai, and the mountain there. He builds an altar when he first entered and went to the central part of the country, he built an altar there. He worshiped God in the midst of a pagan culture. He worshiped God even though everyone else did not. No one else knew. No one else believed. But he did believe. And he even had the courage enough to build an altar to the true God and worship there and not go to any of the other altars, the pagan altars and the shrines and the temples and the mm -hmm. idols that were all around him. He rejected all of that and went there to build this altar. He returns to that altar. God had preserved it. The Canaanites had not destroyed it. Because there it says in verse 4, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. When he returned to the land of Canaan, he did not return to the land of Canaan because now there was fertility and a big harvest. He did not return there for that reason. He wasn't, in other words, he wasn't looking to the physical and the material. He wasn't looking for riches and prosperity. That was not where his eyes were focused. Though God gave him those things, his eyes were not focused on those. He returned to Canaan and went straight to that altar to worship God. He went to the place where he had 
built the altar and he went there to call on the name of the Lord. And when we say he called on the name of the Lord, you may recall from our study of chapter 4, verse 26, and even chapter 12, verse 8, we said that when he calls upon the name of the Lord, he's calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. He is... He was a believer in the gospel, and he continues to be a believer in the gospel. The same gospel we believe, Abraham believed. This is the name uh, upon which he calls. Now, remember, just to summarize, we'll go to Romans chapter 10, which shows us this truth. Romans chapter 10, and we'll start at verse 8. Romans 10, 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart a man believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved is a quote from Joel chapter 2, 2.32. But even Joel, in Joel 2.32, Joel is referring to Genesis 4.26, and even here, our passage in chapter 13 of Genesis and verse 4. He is referring back to this phrase that refers to the ancients, the patriarchs, all calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And Paul says that we also, when we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. Whether Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter who you are, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. But who is the Lord? In verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's what Abraham was doing. The same thing. Now, Genesis 13 and verse 5. Now, Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain there. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Now we have a dilemma. The dilemma is that Abraham and Lot are both very wealthy. They are both very wealthy with all of these possessions, livestock and people and tents and everything that fills the tents, right? So it says in 6, The land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. They had been together ever since they both departed from Ur of the Chaldeans, and they went to Haran from southern Mesopotamia to northern Mesopotamia. They went to Canaan. They also went to Egypt. Now they come back to Canaan, and in the meantime... God has so blessed both of these households that they cannot stay together because there's not enough room. 
And it's not that Abraham and Lot were disagreeable or in conflict, but it was the herdsmen. Those under them, they were in conflict because they were competing for the pasture. They were competing for the wells. They were competing for uh, the, the necessary provisions they, they had uh, to use for their livestock. That was where the problem was. <coughs> what, what happens now? Though Abraham and Lot are walking with God and everything is going well, a problem arises, which should not be a, a surprise to us. Abraham had things going well for him when he first went into the land of Canaan in terms of his own household, but then there's a famine which brings hardship on him, and then he has to go to Egypt temporarily. Now he comes back to Canaan, he's worshiping God, but then something breaks out among the herdsmen. A conflict breaks out among them. This is typical of the Christian life. Typical that things will go well for you, but then suddenly something will happen. It may be caused by you, it may not be caused by you and your sin, it may, may be caused by other people and their sin, but their sin and the aftermath of their sin falls on your lap and then you have to deal with it. That's the way the Christian life is. That's what they're experiencing here. Abraham says in verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Abraham is a man of peace. Abraham is a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He's not an instigator. He's not looking to create conflict. He's one that's looking for harmony. He's looking for peace. He's looking for people to get along with each other. That's the way Abraham is, and that's the way we're supposed to be. Are we not? Yes. Not only did Jesus say that, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But it also says in Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, verse 18. Romans 12, verse 18. The apostle exhorts us to be the same. Romans 12 and 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. This is supposed to be our slant. That's supposed to be our disposition whenever we come across people, to be at peace with them as far as it depends on us. He's saying, in other words, it's a two-way street. The other man, he might not want to have peace with you, but you must try, according to the biblical prescriptions, the biblical parameters of what it means to try to have peace, if, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace. And then it's up to the other man whether he wants to be at peace with you. And if he doesn't, then you handle it accordingly. But try. And that's what Abraham is doing here in Genesis. He wants to be at peace. And he says, I know the conflict is between our herdsmen. And remember, we're brothers. And by brothers, he may mean it in one or both senses. He may mean it in terms of us being relatives. We are relatives. But I think more likely and more the emphasis is probably on the fact that they are spiritual brothers. Why should spiritual brothers have a conflict like this and let 
a conflict among their people rise up and cause a problem for them. So in order to prevent there being constant conflict and constant strife, that's not only among the people, but rising up to Abraham and Lot, and then suddenly at some point it's going to break out so much that Abraham and Lot will be at odds with each other. He says, no, let's not have this happen. Verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. This is the proposal. Abraham presents to Lot, go where you would like to go. The passage does not actually say why it was that Abraham initiated this. Except we know Abraham was a man of peace. And even Lot was a man of peace. They both were. It doesn't tell us why, but because Abraham is the central focus here and because he is the patriarch and the leader of this whole clan of people that left Ur of the Chaldeans and traveled all the way to all these other places, it's likely that Abraham is the spiritual leader, so he sees what's going on and he first presents a solution to it. This is likely the reason why Abraham spoke up first and said something and not Lot. Then 10, verse 10 says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. When, when they looked down and they looked at the valley, the valley of the Jordan, the Jordan River. Remember, the Jordan River goes north and south through the land of Canaan, there's the Mediterranean Sea on the west side of the land of Canaan and the uh, River Jordan on the east side. And in between, there is some mountainous uh, terrain, there's some desert, and there's some fertile terrain as well. But right there along the Jordan, and especially in the southern part, right by what we now call the Dead Sea, in that area, it was very fertile. So very conducive for animal life and plant life and for everyone, that, of course, people nat uh, naturally migrate to bodies of water. Right. And that's what they did here. So how well watered was it? He says here, verse 10, Moses says, This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? What happened? And what happened in that area after it was destroyed? It became a heap of ruins. It was destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. It, it was stinky and salty. It was a wasteland at that point because of the people of Sodom. We can read about this in Genesis chapter 19. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and a few other cities around there. So he destroyed them. But before that destruction, what was that area like? It's described as the, like the garden of the Lord. What's that? The Garden of Eden. Yes, the Garden of Eden, which we read about in Genesis chapter 2. And it was a well-watered garden. We're told about the four rivers. We're told about the, the way that it was very pleasant, very delightful, very abundant for Adam and Eve. So just like the Garden of Eden, that, that's the way it was with this valley of the Jordan near Sodom and Gomorrah. But it was also like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. The land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. The land of Egypt in the Nile Delta area 
where the Nile River empties out and goes into the Mediterranean Sea. All of that area with all of its uh, branches of, of the Nile, it's a very fertile area. And the land of Goshen was right there. Later in the book of, uh, at the end of Genesis and in Exodus, that's where Israel goes as a nation to migrate or as a clan by Jacob and then a nation. They are there in the land of Egypt. So these fertile areas, they are described as the garden of the Lord. Now, some interpreters, by the way, they believe that this verse is an indication that the Garden of Eden was actually located right there. And, and that is a very much a possibility, uh, that the Garden of Eden was right there, and it was a wider area, uh, the, or Eden and, and the area that was surrounding the Garden of Eden. Of course, it was um, a, a specific place, but around it and there is, is likely where Eden was. Eden, that's what, the way some interpreters take this verse, which is very likely. Because why, why would God send Abraham to the land of Canaan? And then later in Scripture, like in Hebrews 11, 11, 8 to 19, why does it say that Abraham was looking for a city whose architect and builder is God? What does the land of Canaan represent in the Scripture? It represents that... that the, the journey to heaven and the city of, uh, of heaven that we are looking for. So that's what the land of Canaan represents. So if it represents that, in what way? Well, just like the Garden of Eden did, the land of Canaan does, and then in the new heavens and the new earth, um, the whole earth will be renovated and renewed like the original garden and last that way forever. Okay, then verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. And Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. He goes to live there. Now, we don't, and they separate. Notice it says that Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, which means more centrally in the land of Canaan, and Lot moved towards the outskirts or towards the edge of the land of Canaan in the land of Sodom. Verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. <clears throat> wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. We don't know if Lot knew at the time how bad it was or not. The Bible does not tell us if Lot actually knew that they were this evil. Maybe he did know, and maybe he didn't know. Right. If he did know, he, he took a chance anyways. And some interpreters say he sinned because he was more looking at the fertility of the land and not the risk of being influenced by the Sodomites. They, they consider him to be sinning and making this choice. But... Even if he did know, um, he could have not sinned by just separating because they needed to separate, and he chose a, a good place for him and his whole clan and his livestock. And knowing that all the land of Canaan is sinful, Sodomites are also very sinful, no doubt. but I need to go somewhere, so that, that's where I'm going to go. It could be like that as well. And then if he was completely ignorant of it, then he, he did it without knowing. 
knowing how bad it was in Sodom. Because Sodom, notice here in verse 13, they were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. He could have gone there in ignorance, not knowing how really sinful they were. This expression that they were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord needs a, a, clear, a couple of clarifications. One, this is not the first time that we hear of their sin. The first time there's an implied problem is chapter 12, verse 6. 12, 6. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. 12, 6. The Canaanite was then in the land. 13.7 says, Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Sometimes Canaanite refers to all the peoples, all the groups that live there, and sometimes it refers to a specific uh, segment of them, especially those that lived along the Mediterranean coast. And Perizzite, those that were on the inland part. So then here, uh, now we have in 13.13, the men of Sodom, were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Turn also to 15, chapter 15, verse 16. 15, 16. Genesis 15, 16. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Another indication of the sin of the people. And chapter 18, chapter 18, verse 20. 1820. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly great. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Their sin was great, exceedingly grave. And there's a, an outcry that reaches up into heaven. Of course, figuratively speaking. Then we know what happens. Abraham prays, intercedes on behalf of the city and says, Lord, if there's 50 righteous, will you destroy it all? And God says no. And then he goes from 50 all the way down to 10. Yeah. And there weren't 10 people. There weren't 10 in that city. And just Lot and his household were spared. And I speak generally because we know his wife. She was about to be spared, but she turned back and became a pillar of salt. So... Basically, we just have Lot, only Lot, in that place. So that's how wicked they were. And they were so wicked that God had to destroy them to punish them for their sins. Chapter 19, chapter 19, here's an example of their sin. 19, verse 4. 19, 4. Before they lay down, that is... Before Lot and the two angels who appeared as men, 19.4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you, by, uh, came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. They want to have sex, men, men with men having sex. And, but Lot went out to them at, at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, uh, then he proceeds. So do not act wickedly. That's what they wanted to do. And then in chapter 19, verse 24, 1924, 
Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. God destroyed them because of their great wickedness. They were wicked people who deserved to be avoided and also deserved eventually to be punished by God. Something else we have to notice in 1313 is it says they were wicked exceedingly. Wicked exceedingly. We also saw that expression in chapter 18, 1820. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Exceedingly grave sin. Which teaches us that every sin is not of the same gravity. Every sin is not of the same gravity, same weight, or same magnitude. Every sin is sin. Every sin is an affront to the holiness of God. Every sin deserves death, for the wages of sin is death. And Adam and Eve, what was the sin that they committed? They chose to eat from the wrong tree, fruit from the wrong tree. And that produced death. So the Bible does teach that every sin is sin. Every sin is an affront to God's holiness. It manifests our, our, our own sinfulness. And every sin deserves death. Right? The Bible says that. He who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So that's James 2.10. However, not every sin is of the same magnitude. For example, we might have covetous thoughts. We might have thoughts of theft and robbery. We might have thoughts of lust and adultery. We might have thoughts of anger, hatred, and murder. We might have all that, but it's worse to act on it. When we act on it, then it becomes worse. But also, when we do act on some sins... Some of those sins that we act upon are worse than other sins. It's one, for example, one sexual sin that is worthy of death and that is a sin and affront to God is the committing of adultery. Committing adultery is a sin. But when a man has sex with another man, that's even more egregious and heinous. It's unnatural. It's perverse. It's unnatural. It's perverse. And then, even worse than that, is if a man has sex with a a child or a baby. That's even worse. And then think about a man having sex with an animal or a woman with an animal. You see what I'm saying? The the Bible does not consider every sin to be uh, the, the same magnitude or the same uh, sense of egregiousness, it's not the same. We all ought to avoid all sin, but we have to also consider sin in its rightful place. Even in the law of Moses, if somebody stole, he would have to pay back double or fourfold or fivefold depending on what he stole. But he did not get the death penalty, right? In the law of Moses, he did not deserve the death penalty. But if somebody murdered another person, that is, he put to death another 
human, an innocent human life, one man put to death another one, an innocent human life, he had no cause to be put to death, he did not commit a crime worthy of death, and yet he did it, that's a sin that is worthy of death. A murderer ought to be put to death in the law of Moses. And that's the way in which Moses means it here in Genesis 13.13. 13. Sin or wickedness was exceedingly wicked and exceedingly great. Let's also reiterate a couple of points from our passage. One is, you notice that Abraham and Lot are men of faith. Actually, let's clarify that also. Is Lot a man of faith? Is Lot a man of faith, or is he just going along for the ride? He, he, does, does he just want a joy ride with Abraham, because God's on it with Abraham, and I'm just going to tag along, because I know if I'm with Abraham, God's going to bless Abraham, and then I'll also benefit. Is he a pragmatist, or is he really a man of faith? To answer that, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2, 6. 2 Peter 2, 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day, with their lawless deeds. Peter the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls Lot righteous three times, and he calls those who were unrighteous, unprincipled men, lawless, unprincipled men, lawless, and in verse 9 also, unrighteous. And in contrast, that would mean Lot was godly and righteous. That's the way the wicked are described, but Lot's described as righteous and godly. Peter says that. Now, based on Genesis chapter 18 and 19, those two chapters, when Abraham interceded for the men of Sodom, and God said, no, I'm going to destroy it, and everyone there, yet he saved one man, which means... That Lot was righteous. He saved Lot because he was righteous. And when Peter says so in 2 Peter 2, he's not exaggerating. He's describing it as it is. He's explaining it in different words, but he's explaining the true nature or character of Lot. Lot was a converted man. He was a godly and righteous man. That's why he was spared, but all the other people of Sodom were destroyed. Because he was righteous. Therefore, when, I, when we talk about Abraham and Lot, we have two men of faith, or two righteous men, two redeemed men, who have their eyes fixed on eternity, on spiritual life and eternal life, not on physical life, though God blesses them. He blesses them with material possessions, which shows that it's possible to have the blessing of God on one's life but not be so blinded by those blessings of life that you lose focus on eternal life, but to use your possessions for the purpose of God's kingdom to spread, for the purposes of helping 
the people of God or evangelism for missions to preach the gospel, to use what possessions you have for his kingdom. That's what Abraham and Lot did. We have a confirmation in Luke chapter 16 that Abraham, when he died, this is the rich man and Lazarus, right? right? The rich man, in that case, he lacked faith. He lacked faith, and when he died, he went to Hades, and he was in torment. But Abraham, he was not in torment, and there was a great chasm between the two. Abraham was in a good place, but the rich man in a bad place. That rich man did not have faith like Abraham did. Abraham had faith, though he had riches. The rich man put his hope and focus on the riches, his confidence on the riches, and not the eternal riches of Christ. And that's why he went to hell. Which uh, uh, example we also have with the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 18 to 30. Remember what happened to him. He is described by a compilation of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that he is known as the rich young ruler. A young ruler, he had great wealth. He came to Jesus to ask about eternal life. Jesus told him, keep the commandments. And he says, I've done it from my youth up. Jesus looks at him and says, one thing you lack, give up all that you possess and give to the poor and come follow me. And why did Jesus do that? Because Jesus knew the heart of that man, that he loved his riches, that he was a hypocrite saying that he was keeping God's commandments, but he really clung to his riches, and that's what he really loved, and he was unwilling to give them up. In that case, his riches sent him to hell. They blinded him so much that he turned away and walked away from that. So riches can mislead. Riches can destroy you. In James, James chapter 2, James chapter 2, we also have another example of riches causing blindness. Riches causing blindness. James chapter 2, verse 1. James 2, 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Right? There is the rich who have power and they receive favoritism and then they exploit other people. They're not the ones who are rich in faith because they've put their hope in riches. But James is not saying no rich man goes to heaven. Right. What he's saying is the rich man should have faith. We know that because of the rest of the chapter in James 2, when he's talking about faith and works, true faith produces fruit, good works, right? Who is his example? 2.21, James 2.21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith 
was perfected and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Abraham was a man of faith. Now, and he was rich and he was saved. Now, in contrast, let's talk about the poor. Are the poor favored by God? And are the poor automatically saved? And is there less that needs to happen to the poor for them to get to heaven than it does for the rich? Are poor people automatically going to heaven? No, they're not. What's required of them? If you're still in James, look at James 2.25. 2.25. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Who is Rahab? She's called here still, even after she's a believer, and she's recorded in the Bible, she's still called Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. And who was she? She was a Canaanite, so she wasn't a Jew. She was a woman, not like Abraham, a man, and she was poor. Usually prostitutes are poor, right? So I think we could safely assume that unless... They're prostituting among the rich men and whatever. But still, if she's on the city wall, it's likely that she was a poor prostitute, right? If her house is right there. She, her, her house was not near the palace or in the palace. Her house was there at the city wall. So we can, I think, safely conclude that she was a poor prostitute. And though she was poor, though she was a, a gross sinner in prostitution, she was a woman and she was a Canaanite. All that didn't matter because she had faith in the gospel, she converted, and she was saved from her sins. Right. So even with Rahab, she, it wasn't enough for her just to be Rahab the harlot. She also needed faith. Now let me confirm with a couple of verses from Isaiah 9 first. Isaiah 9, 17. Isaiah 9, 17 shows that there is no automatic... Ticket to heaven for the poor. There is no automatic ticket to heaven for the poor. Isaiah 9, 17. Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer. Every one of them, orphans and, and even widows, he calls godless and an evildoer. So you could be a wicked orphan or you could be a wicked widow. And God is displeased. You'll ne never get to heaven like that. Another example is Jeremiah 6. Jeremiah 6, 13. Jeremiah 6, 13. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Prophet and priest, those who should know better. And then the least of them to the greatest of them, those who have the lowest ranks in society to the highest ranks in society. He says, least of them to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. Everybody is uh, voracious and insatiable with their love of, of possessions, greedy for gain. Everyone's like that. 
I think that these show and prove that it's not an automatic, even for the poor. And then one more point that we'll make has to do with keeping a separation. Keeping a separation in the world. In Genesis 13, Abraham, he knew to keep separate from the Canaanites. He knew that. That's why he built an altar to the Lord and worshiped the Lord instead of saying, well, I'm in a foreign land, and since I'm living in Rome, I'll do as the Romans do. Well, you can't do that on, on, on major theological and moral issues. You can't do that. Now, if you have to eat their food, you eat their food, right? If you have to, uh, to, to say certain words to be able to, to understand each other, then okay, learn their language. So you can be like the Romans in those ways, learn their language, eat their food like that, dress like they dress, as long as it's modest, right? You can do that, but you can't worship their gods. Right. You can't practice their immorality. You can't do that. Abraham knew it. That's why in 13.4, uh, he called upon the name of the Lord. He did not call upon the name of Baal or Asherah or any of the other gods and goddesses of Canaan. He didn't do that. He called upon the name of the Lord. And even from our narrative, we've seen from select verses that Abraham and Lot, they didn't practice the wickedness that was all around them. It was all around them. They were very few in that land of Canaan. But that's the same as it will be with all of us. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, 12. Philippians 2.12 So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Who are we? We are here to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And 15, we're supposed to be blameless, innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. That's what we're supposed to do while we're in the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We're to have nothing to do with wicked people. And what he means is, 
in terms of spiritual and moral influence, we have to keep ourselves completely separate from them. Right. He does not mean physically separate, because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that we ought to be monks and nuns and live in monasteries right. and convents, right? If the Bible doesn't teach that, but it does teach that as we mingle in the world, we have to be on guard, and we have to have a barrier between us and the world. A spiritual and moral barrier. A theological and ethical barrier between us and the world. Don't let them entrap you. Don't let them catch you off guard. Be on guard yourself. Be ready, not on defense only, but also on offense. Looking for opportunities as lights to shine our light on their darkness. You are the light of the world, right? right. Jesus said. And here uh, we read also in Philippians 2. We are in the world as lights. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.